Well, we are finishing off our series on our identity in Christ, and we've been looking at four words that define who we are in Christ. You know, I was thinking about it last night, and if I had all the power in the world to do anything I wanted, I think I want to imprint these four words onto the hearts and minds of every single Christian who is living on planet Earth right now, because Jesus, when he was alive, he said this. He said, he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Jesus' desire was to free us from the stranglehold that the world has over us, because sometimes the message we get from this world is that we are not loved. The message we get from this world is that we are not wanted. The message we get from this world is that we are rejected or that something in us is not worth accepting so we feel rejected. The message we get from this world is that we are guilty of something that we should live our lives in shame. Isn't that true? So many times in so many ways, whether it's intended or not, every single person on planet Earth gets all of those messages or one of those messages throughout the course of their life. You're not loved, you're not wanted, there's something in you that needs to be rejected, you should be ashamed. This is the message of the world, but Jesus comes along and he sends a different message. Jesus sets a different tone. Jesus says to us, I came to set you free from all of that stuff. Jesus said, I wanna tell you that God loves you. In fact, God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son so that to save you from your sins and to save you from the effects of, this sin, of sin in this crazy mixed up world. Jesus said, not only are you loved, but you are chosen, and God knows everything about you and anyone uh, that anyone could ever know, and yet he still loves you. You are chosen, and you are known, and you are accepted, and you are forgiven. If we could burn those truths into our hearts and minds and into the hearts and minds of every single Christian on earth right now, we would see a revival that were, would rival anything that's ever happened in the history of the church. Because understanding our identity in Christ, understanding who we are when we are his, it is life-changing. Jesus said, he whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Today we're gonna look at the story of a woman who Jesus met, and Jesus met her in what was probably the most embarrassing situation of her life. She was caught in this awkward moment, in this embarrassing moment, and Jesus could have condemned her. Jesus could have shamed her. Jesus could have pronounced her guilty. But Jesus spoke life into her. Jesus spoke the identity of God into her soul. Her story is told in John chapter eight. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt extremely embarrassed or even ashamed? where maybe even others kind of made you feel even more ashamed than you already do. I heard a story in a podcast last week, a pastor was doing meet and greets with people in his church, and these meet and greets were held in his house in the evenings, and people would come over, there'd be appetizers, and they'd sit and visit and just get to know each other a little bit, and the groups would come over, and normally at about nine o'clock, uh, groups would need to leave and get their kids home for bed and, and get stuff going for work the next morning. Uh, one night, there's a group of people that the pastor didn't know very well, and this group didn't want to leave. <laughs> they just kept staying late on into the night, so the pastor started dropping subtle hints, like looking at his watch, saying, oh, it's getting late, 
and uh, time to go to bed. I've got an early morning tomorrow. And every hint, the people would say, yeah, yeah, it is getting late, but then they just keep talking. <laughs> or yeah, I gotta get up early tomorrow too, but then they just keep talking. He, he even started to turn up the heat in his house to try to, you know, so they'd feel uncomfortable and feel like they needed to leave. Finally, pastor subtly kind of grabs his wife and they go off into one of the bedrooms trying to strategize, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna get rid of these people? <laughs> And then he just goes off on a rant. He's like, what's wrong with these people? Why don't they just leave? Can't they take a hint? What are we gonna do? I have to serve breakfast tomorrow? Um, he walks out of the bedroom, back into the living room. These people are sitting there just like their jaw wide open in shock. The room is silent, it's an awkward silence. He realizes there was a baby monitor sitting on the table <laughs> in the living room. These people had heard everything that he had just said. If you ever had a moment where you felt embarrassed or ashamed, that's what happened on this day in John chapter eight, and she was embarrassed in a far more serious way. John chapter eight tells us Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. I just can't imagine this situation. Over the years, I've tried to imagine putting myself into this woman's situation. They caught her in the act of cheating on her husband or she was with somebody else's husband. I would feel so embarrassed, so ashamed in that moment. I don't have the words to even describe how that would be and I would probably be angry. We don't know the details. Did the Pharisees try to set this woman up? Did they have somebody kind of draw her into this so that they could use her as a pawn for their scheme? Uh, why didn't they bring the guy in too? Did he just run away? Maybe he got away and she tried to get away and she couldn't. Or maybe they caught both and they decided, well, we don't need the guy, we just need the girl. They just, we just need her to prove our point. So many questions behind the scenes in this story. How would you feel if somebody exposed your most private sin in front of the whole community? and at the temple too, the most public place possible. Any one of us would feel embarrassed and ashamed and angry. They put her in front of the crowd. They said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Now we actually don't know how often the religious leaders followed through with this command of Moses. We do know that there was a lot of shenanigans going on and Jesus speaks to that in some of his sermons. And most of it was among the wealthy people. It wasn't among poor people because poor people couldn't afford to do this kind of stuff because they just needed to live and they needed their family to live and just survive. But amongst the wealthy, things were not always what it seemed. There was some shenanigans going on behind the scenes. And most of it was happening and the Pharisees were not calling for these people to be punished in any way. So we don't know how often this punishment was actually being meted out. But on this day, the religious leaders decided to set a trap for Jesus. And the text says they were trying to trap Jesus into saying something they could use against him. What was the trap? Well, the trap was if Jesus said, let her go, then he would have been siding with the Romans uh, at the time, Israel was under Roman political rule and there was tension about whether they should obey Roman law or whether they should obey Jewish law. 
And so if Jesus said, yes, let her go, then he'd be siding with the Romans and the crowd might have turned against him for sure. The Pharisees and the religious leaders would have turned against him. But if Jesus says, stone her, according to the law of Moses, he would have been agreeing with the Pharisees, which would have undermined his previous criticisms of them. As you can see, Jesus was in a trap. What Jesus did is he stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. And I've always loved this picture and this scene and this story and what happens next. We don't know what Jesus is writing. It's a mystery to us. Some people think he's writing out the names of the men who were bringing these accusations against this woman. Um, kind of letting them know, hey, I know who you are. I know about you too. Some people think he was writing the names of maybe specific sins in the dust, kind of as a message. Some people think he was writing the words of the Ten Commandments. For, for those of us who read the Bible in English, you might not know this, or if you read it in another language, you might not know this, but in Hebrew, um, most of the Ten Commandments can be written in one Hebrew word. In Hebrew, the Ten Commandments are sometimes called the words of God because most of them are one simple word. Do not steal, do not covet, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not lie. Those are all one word in Hebrew. So some people think that Jesus wrote the 10 words of the 10 commands of Moses. So he was kind of saying, okay, you wanna talk about Moses? Let's talk. Let me just remind you about the other words that Moses spoke and the other words that Moses are included in the law of Moses. And maybe that's what Jesus was writing, but notice something about Jesus' posture as he's writing. What does the act of writing in the dust force Jesus to do? It forces Jesus to get down to this woman's level. So the religious leaders, they're standing over this woman with rocks in their hands, and Jesus gets down to her level. And it's a posture of compassion. And it's a posture of identifying with her. It's a posture that puts Jesus in the same space that she is in, and as he wrote in the dust, they kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again. And he said, all right, but let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, if you think about it, that's a pretty confident statement from Jesus. His statement assumes that out of all of the people in the crowd, there is no perfect person there. Sometimes when you're younger, you kind of think of people that you look up to, people that are older than you, and you think, wow, they can do no wrong. Uh, they're a saint, they're the best person that I ever met, they're amazing. Uh, you think of your favorite teacher that you had in elementary school, or the favorite pastor that you had, or the favorite politician that you had, someone you looked up to and respected when you were young, and you think, wow, that person is the best, they can do no wrong. I just can't see them getting angry or getting frustrated or doing anything wrong or even thinking anything wrong. Then we get a little older, we grow up a little bit, and we start to realize there's no perfect people. There's no perfect church. There's no perfect small group. There's no perfect friend. There's no perfect husband. There's no perfect wife. All of us are flawed in some way. All of us are broken in some way. All of us have done things that we're ashamed of. Every single one of us in this room has had to apologize for something that we did in our life to someone else. That's part of the way that life works. We all make mistakes, we all blow it. We all go through traumatic events that can cause us to take out our frustrations and our emotions on somebody else that we love. We've all done this. And I'm not saying it's right, I'm just saying it happens. 
And that's part of the process of maturing and growing up is learning to do better and learning to heal and learning to be whole and learning to be healthier people for our husbands and our wives and our employees and the people around us in our lives and our friends. And that's just life. So if you've ever, ever been disappointed in somebody or if you've ever been so angry that you started to, wanted to start throwing rocks at somebody, welcome to the human race. Jesus is confident that there is no one in this crowd of people who can throw the first stone. Then Jesus stoops down again and he writes in the dust. And, and so that's it. That's Jesus' mic drop moment, right? Jesus says, you want to do this? Go ahead. But he that's without the first Without sin, he can cast the first stone. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, starting with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. They had ramped themselves up. They had ramped up their anger to the point where they were ready to start chucking stones, and Jesus responds in such a powerful and brilliant way to this angry mob and Jesus diffuses the situation and the mob calms down and the mob goes home. I wonder if you've ever been a part of a mob like that. Maybe it's not a mob, maybe it's just two or three people. And you get together and you talk about your husbands and you talk about your wives and you talk about your parents, you talk about your kids and you talk about your boss or you talk about other frustrations in life and you ramp each other up and you get each other going and you add fuel to the fire and you're ready to pick up stones and start hurling them and the stones are your words. You ever been there? And this woman, she's left there. I mean, she is left there feeling immense guilt and immense shame. Is there anybody in your life that you have ever left in immense guilt and shame? You walked in, you reamed them out, you gave them a piece of your mind, you told them off, and you left them in immense guilt and shame. Maybe they deserved it, but you, the imperfect person, the person who also could deserve that somebody would come and do that to you, you picked up your stones and you took out your anger and you left that person feeling ashamed and feeling embarrassed. Can you imagine being this woman? Your worst sin caught in the moment of your, of, and it's on display for everybody. The public shame and the public humiliation. This might be a good spot to point out that there's a difference between guilt and shame. Here's a working definition of shame. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something that you did or something that was done to you. That's different than guilt. Guilt says, I did something wrong. Shame says, I am something wrong. Shame would like you to believe that if you fail, you're a failure. If you lose, you're a loser. If you made a mistake, well, you are a mistake. Guilt says, I regret who I did. Shame says, I regret who I am. As you can see, guilt can be healthy. Guilt can push us towards God to receive grace and mercy. Guilt can push us towards other people to apologize to them and try to make things right. So guilt can be healthy. And feeling convicted about something can be healthy. It's healthy when you've done wrong to another person that you feel guilt. And for that guilt to drive you to apologize and to admit that you're wrong and to seek forgiveness. But shame doesn't do that. Shame pulls us away from people. 
because shame makes us feel deeply unworthy of anybody's love or anybody's respect. And shame pulls us away from God and we begin to believe that God wants nothing to do with us because of what we've done and who we are and he never will. Let me say this, there's a way to approach somebody that you have a genuine beef with. There's a way to approach them with the problem that does not make them feel ashamed. And if you can learn how to do that, if you can learn how to communicate with another person and say, hey, you hurt me, I feel wronged. And if you can do that in such a way that you don't shame them, more often than not, that person, if they don't feel shamed, they're more likely to be open to apologizing and working it out. And often we communicate shame when our emotions are a little ramped up. But if you can learn to ramp down your emotions and talk to the person at an individual level with, with maybe you know, just you and them, or maybe if you need to, one other person in the room, there's a difference if you call your kids out in front of their friends or in front of the rest of the family than if you sit down with them and say, hey, this, this is the issue that I have that I wanna talk with you about. When you do that public thing, that's shaming. And you might be right, what they did was wrong, but if you do it in front of their friends, you're not gonna get the results that you want because you've added shame to the equation. But if you take them aside and more calmly explain, hey, here's what happens, uh, here's, here's what, what went wrong, and let's talk about this. If you can remove shame, you can get a healthier result. Maybe the best word for shame here is self-condemnation. Self-condemnation, even though you have confessed and apologized and made it right um, with God, even though you've confessed your sins, even though you've asked Jesus to forgive you, you, you might still feel a deep sense of shame. And that's different than guilt. Guilt is when you feel a convic conviction over unconfessed sins. That's good, that's healthy. We should feel a sense of guilt when we've sinned against God or against another person, but self-condemnation is different. Condemnation is, even though we have confessed, even though we've asked God to forgive us, we still feel a sense that we're not worthy. And that is a lie. The irony of this story is that Jesus could have thrown the first stone. Remember, he said, hey, if you're without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. That was Jesus. Jesus had never sinned. He could have thrown the first stone, but here's where the Bible what the Bible says about who Jesus is. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will never perish and will have eternal life. And then it says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus didn't come to condemn, he came to save. And that's good news for you and for me. Another way to say it, might be this, Jesus did not come to shame you. Jesus came to deal with your guilt. Jesus came to deal with the guilt of sin, your sin and my sin, for sure. But Jesus didn't come with condemnation. He didn't come to shave you, shame you, he came to save you. I heard on a podcast this week a story from a woman who had a lot of shame coming out of her childhood. There were addictions in her family, there was abuse in her family, there was divorce in her family, there was a suicide attempt in her family. And then she went off to university and she was part of a church. She was part of a, a university group, a Christian group on her campus. And this woman was telling her story how she remembers thinking, if only people knew my story, if only people knew what my childhood was like, 
If only they knew what my background was like. They might think differently about me, they might not accept me, but they might not love me the way that they seem to. Now, nobody ever said anything to make her feel that way, but it was self-imposed. And that's what shame does. This story teaches us the extent of Jesus' forgiveness. After the mob left them, Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't, didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she says, then neither do I condemn you. Let me ask you today, is there a part of your life, a part of your, fat, or your past where you feel a sense of shame and embarrassment? Maybe for you, it's a divorce. Maybe for you, it's something that happened in your childhood. Maybe it wasn't something that you even did, but it was something that was done to you. Maybe it was a financial decision that you made that made you feel a great deal of embarrassment and regret about in your life. But let me ask you, is there a part of your life right now where you say, you know, I feel so much shame and embarrassment because of that. I, I want you to know today that only Jesus Christ can set the human soul free. It's because only Jesus lived a sinless life. He didn't deserve to die, but he voluntarily died on the cross. Not only did he die and take away the penalty of our guilt that our sins deserved, but to take away our shame and our condemnation as well. How much has Jesus removed our sins and our condemnation from us? Psalm 103 says this, God has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. And then he doesn't just leave it there. Remember I said earlier, Jesus' stated intention is that he wants to see you and I set free. And he whom the son sets free is free indeed. That is Jesus' stated intention for every single person that he meets. He genuinely wants to see them set free. Jesus wants you to be set free from the guilt of sin. Jesus wants you to be set free from the shame that maybe you have imposed on yourself or maybe that somebody else has imposed on you. Jesus wants you to be set free from the power of condemnation in your life. And so this part of the message, he says to the woman, neither do I condemn you. It's a statement of love, it's a statement of acceptance, it's a statement of forgiveness. There is no condemnation, she is forgiven. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says to her, go and sin no more. Because Jesus' goal is that she would not only experience forgiveness in that moment in time, that she would not just be set free for that moment in time, but that freedom from guilt and shame would become a normal experience for her in her life every day. And so he says, go and sin no more. So Jesus gives a warning about the power of sin. Sin is subtle. Sin is a powerful force, and we all know that we can easily get drawn back in, and Jesus gives a warning about sin. And I think there's a few things to note here in Jesus' warning. First of all, we need to be careful that as we emphasize the love of God and the forgiveness of God, that we do not diminish the holiness of God and the righteousness of God. Jesus' purpose in forgiving this woman is not so that she can go right back to it but so that she can be set free from it. He doesn't look at her and say, you don't need to change anything about yourself. He doesn't rationalize it. Or, or you were just born with a desire for intimacy and you were just seeking this out because you were born that way. He doesn't explain it away and then say, 
You're perfect just as you are. Don't change anything. Doesn't say that. He doesn't feel the sense that he needs to redefine sin because it'll sound judgmental. He doesn't do that. Jesus loves her too much to leave her in her sin. And so out of his love, he looks at this person and he says, the best advice I could give you is don't go back to who you were and don't go back to where you were. Move forward into the life that God has called you to live. Go and sin no more. Second thing I think Jesus might be alluding to here is that we need to acknowledge that sin can gain a power over us that is impossible to control in our own strength. It's a sad truth about the human race that we don't always learn from our mistakes and from our sin. We often have to make a lot of mistakes before we start to get the message that life is actually better the way that God encourages us to live it. What happens to us so often is that sin hurts us and sin damages our life and yet we so often go right back to it. The Bible kind of gives a graphic portrayal of what this looks like in Proverbs. It says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats their foolishness. Some of us have a sin that's on repeat in our lives. And here's the harsh truth about sin and about forgiveness, and it's this, while forgiveness is permanent, the effects of sin are persistent. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that we turn from our sins and we ask God to forgive us and there's an immediate and permanent forgiveness that we receive in our life. In fact, we, we teach that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all of our sins, past, present, and future. He died for sin in total, in sum. And, and, and that is true, that when we come to Christ, that ultimately Christ has, uh, God has forgiven us through Christ for all that we have done or ever will do. But the effects of sin are persistent. There's a consequence for lying. People won't trust you. They might not forgive you. It might take them a while to trust you again. There's a consequence for sexual sin. You can be forgiven of it, but there might be some effects and some consequences that you're gonna carry into a future relationship or carry on for a future part of your life. Forgiveness is permanent, but the effects of sin are persistent. Our attitude towards sin can either be so what or so that. It can be so easy to say to ourselves, so what, so what? So what if I lied about that? I mean, it was just a little lie. Uh, nobody's gonna notice, nobody's gonna care. Nobody's gonna find out, so what? Why would God care about that? So what if I slandered that person? I mean, first of all, it was on Twitter, so it doesn't make a big deal. Everybody does that there. And I was maybe a little rude, but guess what? It was true. I mean, if you can't deal with it, sorry, it was true. So what if I slander that person? What if I was rude in my tone? So what? Doesn't matter. So what if I slept with that person? Why do you care? Why do you care what I do in the privacy of my home? Why does God care about that? What does he care? So what? To which I believe that God would say, so that. Just take a look at the promises in Deuteronomy 5 to 6. Very end of chapter 5. Moses uses these two little words together. 
Um, six times he says these two little words together. Now, it works in this translation, not necessarily in other translation, but the NIV puts it this way. Oh, that their hearts would fear me and keep my commands so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Walk in obedience to all your, that God, your God has commanded you so that you may prosper. Keep the commands I give you so that you may enjoy life. Be careful to obey all that I've commanded you so that it will go well with you. Six times, six little promises, two little words, so that. So what? So that. God gives us commands not to restrict us but to, or to control us. God gives us commandments so that life will go well, so that you will enjoy life, so that you will flourish, so that you will prosper. Jesus looks at this woman and he says, go and sin no more so that it will go well with you. I wanna say one final word about condemnation. Back to the story. Jesus says to this woman, where are your accusers? Have they condemned you? She says, no one's here. He says, neither do I condemn you. It's worth noting that this woman would have expected judgment. She would have expected Jesus would judge her instead of what she received was mercy. Romans 8 verse 1 says, therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me just show you a picture of a condemned building. There's three buildings up here. You know, so often, uh, you know, outside of a condemned building, you'll see a sign, something like this one that says, do not enter. Or you might see, uh, you know, a gate around the building to kind of protect, protect people from this condemned building. Um, you might see a sign that says, unfit for use. This is what makes a building condemned, is it's unfit for use. I believe that we all have a spiritual enemy named Satan, and he would like nothing more than to fill your heart and your mind with so much shame and so much condemnation that you begin to believe that you are unfit for use that you begin to believe there is no way I could serve God in that ministry. There's no way I could, God would even want me because look at what I've done, look at who I am. I'm just unfit for use. Our spiritual enemy, Satan, would like nothing more for the, than for you to walk into a church like this and look at everyone around sitting here and think, ah, you know, look at all these good Christian people, these good Christian families. I bet they all have just a perfect life and a perfect past. I don't fit here. I'm not fit to go to this church. Our spiritual enemy would like nothing more for you than for you to believe, begin to believe, sorry, that you are unfit to receive God's love because of something in your past, some sin that you did that God would look at you and say, I don't want anything to do with him or her, that you're unfit to be loved by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He would like nothing more than for you to believe that I'm unfit to have a future that's blessed, that I'm unfit to have a future that goes well, that I'm unfit to have a life where God would choose to bless me and be with me and walk with me. If that's you this morning, I just want to read for you today by the power of the Spirit of God who inspired Paul to write these words. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now 
no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your guilt has been dealt with. Your shame has been dealt with at the cross. Today, as we close in the last few minutes here, just as the music is playing, I wanna ask you two questions. I wanna give you some time to just hear from God and hear what God might be saying to you specifically this morning. First question is this, God, what are you saying to me this morning? What are you saying to me this morning? So Lord, I ask that you would speak to us right now. I ask God that you would, would speak. God, what are you saying to us? Just ask him that question and let's just pause and hear from the Lord what he might want to say to us. God is reminding you that sometimes you have a tendency to pick up stones. Maybe God's reminding you that that shame that you felt from that experience you had in the past. Maybe God is just wanting to speak into those things in your life and just remind you afresh and anew that in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Now I want us to ask the question, God, what do you want me to do with what you're saying to me? God, what do you want me to do with what you're saying to me? Let's ask God that question. here this morning and you are already a believer in Jesus Christ, maybe you just want to talk to somebody about some things that have been going on in your heart and what God's doing in your heart this morning. And just down the center aisle to the right, there's a prayer room and there's a prayer team that would love to pray for you. Maybe you're here this morning and you have never put your trust in Christ and you want to begin this journey and begin to experience this idea of freedom that Jesus promised for all of us. And if that's you this morning, it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to live into, but it's an easy thing to get started with. And it's as simple as just simply saying in your heart, God, I recognize that I'm a sinner. God, I recognize that I have done wrong and there's things that where I am guilty and there's a, maybe some shame in my life from all of this baggage that I have. And God, would you forgive me? And God, I want to experience your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy. And I want to experience what it's like to have no condemnation. And so God, I'm giving my heart to you. I'm giving my life to you to serve you and follow you. 
You don't need those exact words, but that's kind of the spirit of a prayer that will launch you into a walk with God. If that's a cry in your heart this morning, please stop by the prayer room and talk with somebody there. We would love to pray with you and be a part of your journey. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you his perfect peace. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Have a fantastic Sunday. We'll see you again next week.